You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, community radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is Paris. This is Chuck D. This is Flavor Flav, boy. And you're in tune to 91.1 FM, WGDR Plainfield. Welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that dives into the heart of things, exploring new ideas 
and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Caroline Casey is a fast-talking, coyote trickster, visionary activist who integrates the mythological and the political in a wildly creative and playful way, inviting all to play along with her. In that way, I think she's a great example of another way of seeing and relating in this wondrous, crazy world we share. Stay with us for an exhilarating and fascinating 90 minutes with visionary activist Caroline Casey. We'll begin with an interview I did with Caroline almost two years ago, and then follow that with a talk she gave at the time of our last solar eclipse. a radio show on KPFA. I do. I have a radio show for 19 and a half years from Washington to KPFA in Berkeley, live replayed on KPFK in Los Angeles. So my voice travels to California. I'm more known in California. People think I live in California, but for mysterious reasons, I live just outside D.C. in a little witch's house, you know, cross-pollinating east and west coast and leaving the ghettos of consensus to file scouting reports. So, you know, and what is our purpose as uh, a creative exiles moving into participation? So, to quip, you know, especially when I go to California, you know, I live in a non-citadel of grooviness. I live in Washington, D.C. For all of you, think of me as your agent there. But also, you know, I like to invite people to think of their lives like spiritual detective novels, you know, in which everything's an assignment and a clue. So, I was born in Washington in to a political family, so kind of trained to bring metaphysics into the political and vice versa. How do you do that? Well, they belong together. I think all oppositions are false estrangements brokered by the reality police to render people efficient and obedient to empire. So mythological literacy is really crucial. For instance, you know, part of the dynamic of now, you know, we know the, the kind of frame story. Here's, you know, empire and colonialism. Oh, row, you bastards, you know, going down, collapsing, but taking so much life with it. Culture of reverent, sane ingenuity, collaborate with nature's genius, kind of rising from the rubble. Here we go, here we go. So our job is inviters. You know, come on over from the thing that's going down to the thing that's coming up. And both are happening at the exact yeah, same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's 20, 30 stories going on at once, and they could all be conflicting and all be true. Which one are we going to vote for? So w- we know from Bernie, you know, uh, let us not impose our yearning disability on Bernie, because he's not a celebrity. He's, he's a great teammate. And people are befoibled and grumpy, and but there does want to be an against all odds, trickster, sane, reverent democracy rising up out of the rubble. So we like that. So the myths do permeate the political world. You know, things that we know in common sense, but that the mythic language is always leading us to. Lead in water. Fall of the Roman Empire. So they poison themselves with drinking lead out of the water. Lead is associated with Saturn as a planetary intelligence. You know, Saturn's associated with leadership. So embedded in the language, it says, when you have led, you know, it means new leadership is required. You know, the leadership is corrupt. Leadership. Leadership, exactly. And I heard a fragment of somebody on the radio saying, the root of all terrorism is corruption. I go, yeah, okay. She was saying, you know, if you live in a society where your sister must sleep with the judge to have her case heard or is raped by the judge, and people come along and invite you and go, we will create a moral order where that will never happen and that judge will be punished. Yes, 
You know, you, you would, we understand how these false initiations take place for lack of our own tonic initiations. So corruption is everywhere. So there's a million ways to go. So feel, which, which, feel free be, to, which begins first? Is the political just a round of mythical cycles or is the myth just being reborn through our political shenanigans? Mm. See, I, I, I don't use myth as a disparaging term, um, but really as... I, I wasn't, right. just in case you were wondering. Right. Well, I was medium wondering. Uh, <laughs> just clarifying, that's good. Language is a tricky, tricky thing. I love, I, we love language, though, right? Here, here we are. Well, it's certainly the great tool. Yes, it's the technology of intimacy. I know, if we talk long enough, I'll find the thread. That's great. So, our, <laughs> our word inaugurate, right, is wonderful. It comes from the augur. The diviner, augur means diviner. So the diviner part of all of us would walk into the woods and nature by pattern would reveal the responsible human and then they would be inaugurated. That's what it means. So when we look words up in a good dictionary or take them back or take stories back to their originating impulse before they got hoodwinked into servitude to some false external thing, you know, it brings us to a more living level of reality. So I'm dedicated to the rewedding of animism and activism as the unbeatable combination. Explain yes, that Exactly, exactly. Um, <laughs> meaning, so when I started on Pacifica Radio, which it was, you know, very grumpily progressive in the mid-90s, there was a huge popular call for what I was doing, which was mythological storytelling and tying it into immediate news. So I'm a mythological news service. So I started off, and, and there were still some grumpy progressives going, you know, this station, you know, the world is owned by imperialists and capitalists. How dare you talk about imagination and art <laughs> and magic, you know. And so I would always have a section of my radio show called What I Wish I'd Said Last Week. You know? <laughs> and I would bring in the critique, because we welcome critique, going, there are those who care so deeply for the world that, you know, they have a singular sense of but then I would say but that is actually quite a colonized attitude <laughs> because the colonialism is the divorce of mm, cooperating with nature the wedding of inviting in the collaboration of natural forces so friends in Hawaii when there's a bad project they invite Pele, volcano goddess, to disrupt it. So when the thermal plant is breaking ground in the jungle to lay the cornerstones, the volcano erupts right there. And they go, that shouldn't happen. We'll do it again. So it's just a, a whimsical, playful way of the animism and the activism going, we're voting for all the creatures and all the beings on this planet. We want to throw everything into the cauldron, all sacred teachings, all political, everything, and go, is it equal? Mars and Venus, is it equal humans and the rest of critters on this planet? As the trickster revealer of creative disruption, welcome, can the truth be said without fear? Let's ladle it out. Yes, you know, or no, we throw it back in for another round of bubbling. And that's quite a uh, jumble of things you've just thrown <laughs> into the pot right there. <laughs> exactly, let's brew them, there we go. Well, the first thing that grabbed my wanting to grab onto was talking about the equality of these different things and how do you define equality in those terms and how can anything be equal in certain terms and how can anything be unequal in another set of terms. So we clarify that equals does not mean same, mm -hmm. right? We love looking words up. So, for instance, the word privilege means private law. 
So there you the have private it. creation of the law of one's own choosing? Well, we would hope, but I think in our current conversation going, oh, one law for rich folk, one law for others. Well, that's know, what I mean. That's, I, th- I think that's, we, we want it revealing going, oh, that's a clearly colonial concept, privilege. Apparently the Magna Carta was really just a granting of privileges, not really a liberating thing to the, the wealthy landowning or reshuffling. And it's what, it's what we're all taking on right now. So equality, like, like what do we mean by democracy and equality? I love in the astrological language, Uranus represents trickster, ingenuity, intuition. And then the last ideas associated with it are democracy, equality, synchronicity. And I was like, what do those guys have to do with each other? And wondering is really useful because I was wondering it. And then no sooner did I wonder that than events arrange themselves to make it quite clear. We can all have different roles on stage. You know, like uh, we're speaking now, people are listening now, we can, you know, rotate that. But backstage, we can all be different, but the effective form of communication is direct straight across. Hi, how you doing? It doesn't mean being nice, because nice comes from nescient, which means ignorant. But it does mean being respectful, and respect means to look again, which is nice, re-again, spect look. Hey, how you doing? And what I found in the circumstance was... When we treat each other with that kind of equal respect, which can be disagreement and everything, you know, the rate of synchronicity increases dramatically. You know, I mean, I can give the example that made me think that, but I really kind of proffer it out to everybody to just experiment. When we look down at somebody or up at somebody, it flattens out the magic. And this is what makes the transformational culture a sporting possibility, because we might say the Dementors of Doom bless their hearts, you know, have more lawyers and more money, you know, taken that of creation to abyss of extinction and all. But we, if we treat each other well, have synchronicity, right? Conversation, right? You know, so one of the reasons I live in Washington just outside and I live with an actual coyote, she's turning 19 in March. So do you, do you live in the woods? Do you live... I, I was in the woods and I haven't moved and now I'm in the suburbs because the ha- monster boxes have grown around my little <laughs> humble house. But I'm a three-minute walk to the river and the woods. Mm-hmm. So I'm 20 minutes outside the city. The city has its own magic. There's a great book called The Secret Architecture of Our Nation's Capital, mm-hmm. written, approved of by the Masons. But there's statues of ISIS, I mean, all kinds of stuff. And as a, a friend said, it's a waiting animation. We go, well, let's, what are we waiting for? But, I mean, everybody's got their different assignment. Everybody. We need, we need everybody. That's part of the dynamic. So, so part of what I do in Washington, apparently, I do cross borders and then report back to the kind of progressive team and everything. You know, because we want to step out of ghettos. We want to be part of an irresistible renaissance that is inviting everybody's ingenuity. To not have the sneaky elitism of progressive, you know, infiltrate, you know, well, it already died, you know, progressive elite going, we... See, specialness is a toxic trick. Condescension. Righteousness. Not equal. Righteousness, yes. All that stuff. Right, if our, if our progressive team could compost its addiction to righteous, finger-wagging disappointment. See, if you knew what I knew, you wouldn't vote. See, if you knew it, I got flag on that play, inadvertent colonialism, no matter what you say. You know, it's an unequal, condescending, finger-wagging kind of a thing. So... It's a broader adventure now, and nobody has to do anything but according to their affinity. So I go to, I've been to CPAC, right, just to go to the underworld, the Conservative Political Action Conference, just to talk to the demons and to go, is there anybody there? Well, there is to form common lineage with. These conversations across borders, and then we dissolve the borders. The Venusian trickster redeemer, wanting to be born in all hearts, regardless of, you know, temporary gender, race, and ideology. Right, ex- absolutely. You know, see, it's a different, it's not a err, err. It's a fundamental woof, woof, want to play 
you know, not counting on, but willing to be liberating to everybody, even the tyrant. You know, internal dedication magnetizes, you know, the outward opportunity. Maybe. It's a, it's a working thought. But again, you know, woof, woof on a play. So whatever we speak to one another is the part of them we're inviting to dance. So things that I've used a lot, but nobody here has ever heard me before. So a sour, sourdough starter. But I like the liberating power of unexpected language. And also everybody, everybody right beside you, wherever you are right now, you have an invisible, important tool, a harumphitude composter, which is out of compost harumphitude because communication is really only effective after we've composted harumphitude. So at CPEC, there were these Ayn Rand right-wing Austrian economists, all of whom apparently named Wolfgang. And so I was like, Phew. and then it's like, no, no, compost harumphitude, there we go. And so they approached me and I was dressed colorfully as I, as I am, you know, and just in general, which tends to, everybody kind of makes everybody playful. But they came up and they go, you, who are you? And I said, um, I'm Coyote Network News. I'm a mythological news service for the trickster redeemer within us all. And they were like, that is so cool. <laughs> and they, were, they wanted to play. If I'd said, I'm an anti-war environmentalist feminist. Or Code Pink. Right, see, I'm actually a, found, a co-founder of Code Pink, meaning I gave them the name. Because on the radio show a million years ago, and I met Medea and all those people, the Council of Unreasonable Women convened. And at the time on the radio show, the Visionary Activist show, you can find it out there. But it was when, you know, the fear-mongering was coming down, you know, Code Red, you know, and I, and I would just say, we're declaring Code Hot Pink, which is everybody remember we're all dreaming this thing together, right? And so I told Medea and Jody Evans, and they were just meeting and going, mm, Code Hot Pink. But they dropped the hot because it was apparently a porno site. Um, so Code Pink. Yeah, but, but exactly, Code Pink puts you in a box, Right. Coyote Network news. news, not a target at all. I mean, you're in a trickster part of all of us as we, we are big gods. We don't care what you do. We care the manner in which you do it, that it be from freedom and choice. So part of my dedication is to serve diversity. Let's have linguistic diversity, you know, more language so we can use war metaphors of Target and, you know, blessed Bill McKibben. Hi there. And have a more fluid dance. Yeah. And also just, you know, when we use words, you know, when blessed Bill says we're going to fight global warming, well, fight's a very hot word. I mean, it, it creates an actual cascade of adrenaline because our brains are... Um, Fighting for peace. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, dancing, that's where we want everybody's, uh, you know, playful linguistic skills. We're not going to fight global warming. It's fighting that got us into this pickle. We're going to engage the ingenuity of humans to work with the ingenuity of nature. It's a little long. We need to tighten it up. But it's a, a dance. Like, do we really want to make things concrete? No. Do we, you know, do, do we want to have an impact a short, violent encounter. And so by the cunning trickster use of hyphens, I'm happy with it by putting a hyphen in impact because then we have imp act. I'd much rather have an imp act than an impact. And dot, dot, dots and commas and... Yeah, semicolons and exclamation points really have a meaning. They're so abused. I want to reclaim them. Right. I like the question mark exclamation mark yeah. combo. Well, yeah. Wedding. Woof, woof, want to play. <laughs> meaning... Woof, woof. Yeah. Well, remember, dance? <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, in the, the great Mary Oliver line from her poem in which she's singing praise, singing praise, I sing in praise of this. And it ends by saying, you know, I sing in praise to the coyote that came at me with its strong teeth bared and then at the last moment smiled. And it's like, I think that's kind of like now. Oh, no, no. Oh, here we go. So at CPEC, just for the little thing, um, my friends who got me there said, let's smuggle you into the Reagan cocktail party before the Reagan banquet. And I'm like, okay, I'll go anywhere. So I, I think I was wearing a wolf necklace. And, and this guy came up and was just kind of 
magnetized, like, who are you, who are you, what are you doing here? What? And I go, ah, and I, I went into the wolf model of leadership and other things that we like, and, and he goes, you know, I own the largest privately owned boat in the world. And I go, well, you must love the ocean. And he's like, I do. You know? Anyway, so we started talking about Joseph, and he goes, Joseph Campbell, I haven't had a mythological conversation in so long. Here, be my date at the Reagan banquet. And I go, okay. You know? Now, it turns out he's Mr. Platinum Republican, and you can see that there's a part of him that yearns for a mythological conversation that wants that part of him addressed that hasn't been in a long time. And then there's the, the kind of NAFs, the Republican demons, and they're, they're both at work in, in him. You know? And so at some point he goes, George W. Bush, one of our best presidents. And I go... As long as I've known you, which was like 30 minutes ago, I've never heard you say such a silly thing. I think you might be possessed. And he goes, possessed. Now, he wasn't angry. He was surprised, right? Surprising language. And I go, yeah, I don't think you even believe that. And he's like, hmm. So, again, it's a story that he sends me the photograph, and I see that he's a you know, CEO of a really big petroleum company. And I go, <laughs> so I send him Avery Levin's green energy policy for the military. And I get back a much more nuanced from this big deal guy who wants to be a mythological hero once long ago. And he says, I, I remember, Amory, from our days in the 70s, uh, we were working together on solar panels. But what I need to know from Amory is, you know, I, I don't trust his numbers on the economy. So I go back to our team and I go, the conservatives, you know, they want numbers. Feed them numbers. You know? <laughs> so I do, but whatever we speak to another and people go, are there any conservatives to have a conversation with? Well, see, it's such a great opportunity right now because there's insane people, and but you never know. Sociopathic heart can bloom again, but you, you know. And sometimes it's just the facade. It's the mask that they wear because it's the people that they hang out with. Right. Well, right. And, and it sounds like this guy had some yearning within him to break out behind that mask. Right. Well, we don't want to count on things, but we want to be willing. Mm. Willing to dance. Willing to dance. Yeah. Um, and so, like, uh, on a plane, I am sitting next to a guy who was teaching naval intelligence at Berkeley and was part of the uh, first Gulf War, and he goes, you probably think I'm a terrible person. You work for Pacifica Radio. I'm like, no. And he goes, no. That's amazing. Let's talk. And I go, well, I think all war is a failure of imagination. And he goes, no, I, I can't go that far. But this war is. And I go, well, we'll start there. Well, I love that term, war is a failure of imagination. Flesh that out just a little bit. Well, you know, there, there are imaginary listeners out there. Right. Hello, imaginary <laughs> listeners. Hello, you woof woofs. So I had to follow my own dictates, which is, that was an incomplete sentence. So all war is a failure of imagination. I will come right back for that. But then I had to add, so all peace is a triumph of the imagination. Ah, oh, there we go. So we want to expand our repertoire of responses, which was in accord with nature. We say to be reactive is not free. We like freedom. To cultivate an ever larger repertoire of responses, you know, is to ally with nature's evolutionary ingenuity. So the world is being destroyed by hyper-yang Mars death frenzy. Mars with no Venus. We know Al-Qaeda and, and even what's misnamed ISIS, you know, Daesh. They have marriage ceremonies, not unlike the marriage ceremonies of Skull and Bones at Yale, whereby... American men go through a ritual wedding ceremony in which they first start off by saying this feeling of kinship, feeling is weak, kinship is weak, I kill it now. That's what they do. And as a society, we go, well, we'll give you economic and political power now that we've trained you to be sociopaths in American model. So part of it is we, we want to be insourcing what we've been outsourcing, so we don't want to outsource leadership to sociopathic dingbats, you know, who've lost kinship at all anymore. And the Al-Qaeda ceremony is a wedding. 
you marry war. So And you learn to dance only with the devil. Because I think to be truly open to the dance, you have to be willing to dance with any and all of it. No right, exclusion. Right, no exclusion. Yeah. Right, right, well, yeah, so it's Wolf Wolf Wanna Play. So in mythology in the world, we live in, not only we're a recent species destroying everything, but even in just recent generations, to not initiate Mars. Mars and everybody. You know, come we need you to build Stonehenge, to create Renaissance, to be a green man, to do local farming. And everywhere in culture and in myths, it's Venus that initiates Mars. You know, trickster in all of us, okay, it's nature's evolutionary ingenuity, it's coyote, it's raven, it's seeds that come alive after cataclysm. You know, it, it's a part of us that loves against all odds. So trickster's romping in this election for sure. We do like against all odds. We have the con man and the trickster. You know, Americans learning to distinguish between the two. Anything could happen. We invite power in and proffer it a template. Certainly, whatever's truly best for everybody against all odds, let it unfold. I think just putting out entertaining, witty possibilities. I like that Obama appoints Hillary Clinton to the Supreme Court, and she can't quite turn it down. Ah, ah, it, 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 it bypasses her militarism. It, it almost keeps her clean from Wall Street, except for Monsanto. It's a lifelong thing. The Republicans so want to get rid of her that they might actually support the appointment. Anyway, unlikely, but fun. Um, another guest on my show said, well, what if Trump and Sanders both run as independents, thus destroying the two-party system? We go, that's fun, too. I like against all odds. I'm rooting for what Bernie represents. I, I want to, our team to, again, not impose, you know, celebrity yearning disability because he's a sane, reverent voice, and it is wonderfully against all odds. And when I talk to conservatives, and there are intelligent conservatives who are appalled at what's happening and who are really educated and say, you know, conservative used to mean no dogma, they're voting for Bernie. Right. So conservative Republicans voting for Bernie. And I loved some NPR reporter talking to a Tea Party guy who was like, you know, out of work and dismal in rural Nevada. But he's like, oh, I just love Trump. I just feel better when I see him. But I do want to legalize cannabis, you know, but I'm, I'm really Trump. But the reporter said, if Trump disappeared, who would you vote for? And the guy said, Bernie, of course. Anyway, so I love that people want to know how they're being hoodwinked. See, the progressive team until now has not been skilled at the storytelling, compelling, mythological, invitational realm of like, oh, come on this way. We've left it by default to the Dementors, the Rush Limbaugh's, who will tell you how you're being ripped off in colorful language and the whatever. And so it behooves all of us to be irresistible storyteller inviters going, come on over here. This is sane, reverent common sense. Everybody's welcome. We need everybody. It's a Renaissance thing. Renaissance was not against anybody. It was, again, an attractive, magnetizing thing. So, yes. And why... It's actually very useful to learn your mythology <laughs> yeah. so that you can see the world around us in its proper context, which is very mythological. It's very insane, but it has real context. And we think of reality as this block of concrete, Ooh. but mm. God help us. No, it's living. It's, it's living. <laughs> Let's say the, the protoplasm of reality is especially receptive to imaginative imprint now. Mm. You know, again, as late Reverend Ike would say, if we can dream it up, we can dream it down. So let's suck the chi out of the undesirable and animate the desirable vision. And this, again, is our progressive team going, well, we know what we don't want. What do you want and what does it look like? And let's go there. So we don't need more power, but to use what we have. So everybody listening, everybody, yeah. We, we have a magic mirror. Secular 
regular critic, part of all of us, very necessary, holds up a mirror and goes, you know, look, it, it sucks in details. It's terrible. Yeah. Part one. All right. Trickster with a wave of the hand turns mirror into window. But look how great it could look, right? And then another wave of the hand turns it into a door. Let's go there. Yeah. Here we go. Skedaddling over there. And that's the fluid dance. Right. And again, yeah, until now, you know, progressive left has been like just finger waggy mirror. Nah, nah, at nah, the nah. block of concrete. At the block of that concrete. That they hate. And that they, they're hiring to disappoint them. Exactly. Complicitous with tyranny. Right. Complicitous with tyranny. So we want to compost tragic romantic melancholy, you know, that, you know, you know, Brecht has a great essay, Five Obstacles to Telling the Truth. I like to turn it into five opportunities. But what he said, where we bespell ourselves is the storytelling of the progressive left has been, we are great, we take on evil, we are crushed. But we are still great. And it's like, no, no. We have to quit telling the story about how the good is weak. You know, what is it? See the beauty from the grief. We do grief poker. I see your grief and raise you one. And it is meant to be a compost. See, one of the things I was just doing at Goddard, you know, linguistic play, working with so many people who are talking about trauma, 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 trauma. And I go, okay, let's play with metaphors as though each one of us as a metaphor, you know, before birth said, land me in circumstances where I learn everything that needs healing in the world, you know, mm. and the gods go, really? And you go, yeah, sure, <laughs> okay, here you go. So, rather than the Get word trauma, yeah, right, right. <laughs> change my mind, but rather than the word trauma, I like encouraging us all to replace it on occasion with the phrase, my dangerous, beautiful assignment. Mm. You know, we know what it's like to not have a voice. So it's not, oh, whaley, whaley, tragic, romantic, self-important, whaley. It's, so I will be a voice for that which has no voice, because I know what that's like. From the center of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, grief is a great mystery and to be honored, you know, and there is a great fear of that, and people do want to cover it up, even people who are grieving. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. You know, it's like Martin Prechtel, when he came back to this country after 25 years in Guatemala, said he'd forgotten that Americans know so little about grief, and for lack of grief, we go to war. Like, I was just working with my beautiful friend, Deborah Felmuth, who lived for many, many years until 2012 in Syria, and... We talk a lot about beauty from grief and beauty poker. What's this term, beauty poker? Right, which is very much intrinsic to the Middle East, what we need underneath all the rubble, the beauty that the oppressor actually is seeking the medicine of what he or she oppresses. So the Middle East underneath all of the rubble is beautiful culture of interwoven blessing all day. So, Deborah, for years I've hosted her on the radio before the increasingly terribleness of Syria now and before that and then during it and, and now. But beauty out of grief. So she would guide us into how the whole day is woven together with blessing and beauty. And so I would say, well, then here's a triumph of imagination. May war be replaced with beauty poker. I see your act of beauty and raise you one. Hmm. Here's a beautiful piece of music from our people. That is beautiful. Here's an even more beautiful piece from our people. Ooh, that is beautiful. And and blessing poker. May it go well for you. May it go even more well for you. May pomegranate blossoms strew upon your path this morning and your whole family be wonderfully well. That is good. And may pomegranate blossoms and orange, you know, our, our Venusian foreign policy, clean water, food. When I was talking to, you know, naval intelligence, harumphitude guy on plane, I said, I think the only solution to terrorism really is a wonderful life for all children. He goes, yeah, you're right. You, know, you can get to that place if one is invitationally willing. You know, a wonderful life for all children. So we're like, well, well that's beauty poker. And it's part of the power of what everybody's doing now, which is to do a good thing, which is like, wow, did you hear what, you know, Tonio did, you know, all of that. And so the good thing becomes a story which travels 
And then people are inspired to do good things, which then become a story which travels. And then, so the, I think this is part of the against all odds kind of renaissance dynamic because there's so many people doing beautiful, great things. And that's kind of the beauty poker in a playful way. The wonderful cycles, opposed to the vicious cycles. Right, and the, right that's great. Yeah, and the compassion increasing, altruism rising which is astounding and beautiful. You know, and I do love the astrological guiding language, and Neptune represents how a culture tells itself its own story through the images and music that move through collective mind. So now Neptune, first time in 165 years, is in Pisces, its home realm of everything that's ever moved humans to kinship and beauty. It's like the backstage nature gods are going to, we're going to have to either kill the humans or heal them, Let's try healing them first. All right, we'll play to their strong suit of poetry and beauty. Uh, here we go. So for everybody right now, that which elicits goodness is available for animation and invitation. See, I love the word complicity, meaning not shame, not blame, but whatever's going on, we're contributing creative energy to it. So it's not shame, not blame. It's not blaming the victim. Ah, okay. It's just an acknowledgement that whatever is going on, we're contributing to directing that movie or contributing energy to it. But if we don't like it and we recognize that, we can choose to withdraw our complicity from that and exhale it to this better story. You know, it's like breaking the trance, going, hey, hey, not that, but over here. And it's also... It's, it's a kind of like spiritual judo. Or Aikido. Yeah, I think so. And also Dog Whisperer, which is, you know, no dogs or humans really like the word no. You go, hey, hey, you, you break the trance. You go, hey, not that. But over here, yes. And I so wish our team would adopt that with everybody, including Obama, going, hey, hey, no, no, not, no, drones, bad, no, no, but good, good National Park Reserve, good over there. So many of our team, you cannot say anything good about Obama because they go, oh, the drones and the thing and then and we go, yeah, 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 but praise the good as well. Not that, but over here, that thing. And I do find our team churlish. To me, that's the supreme art of the trickster. Mm. And you learn that when you're dealing with children. Yes. And then to take it out to the rest of the world, like playing with the adults. Well, folks I mean, want to play. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's hard to imagine adults being playful enough, but you can always play. Yeah, yeah, if yeah. you're resourceful enough and creative enough and keep looking out those other windows of possibility. And if one's attitude is woof, woof, want to play. I, I go through airport security and my hair is sort of colorful and purple and, and airport security likes it. Going, oh, because the intention is not, you know, rah, 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 you know, punk, I'm hip and you're not. You know, it's uh, woof, woof, want to play. But yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, wolves play every 30 minutes even when they're hunting. And their top leadership criterion is who initiates play best. You know, they, they don't operate on dominance. It's not just let's play, it's let, let's go hunting and stuff. So I love that as a model of leadership. You know, it's the wolf that engages the playful ingenuity of the pack. And I go, yeah, let's elect that. Let's inaugurate that. And you can tell the wolf leader within 10 days of birth because it's the pup with the lowest resting heartbeat. So it's the coolest, calmest, and engaging playful. And I go... That's a great leadership model. I, mean, I think that's fabulous. And then I like to blend it with goose, which is lead goose rotates, right? Because the lead goose has always taken the wind flack. And we do destroy anybody out front. So it's like wolf-goose model. And anything that anybody else likes, again, whatever we like in nature is part of the medicine we might want to contribute. So sometimes it's the trickster role to just not be constrained by conformity, but be more dedicated to liberating. Going, come on, everybody. 
it's as though the entire nature of reality or the shape-shifting of the divine is like a giant coyote bowing down in front of us going, woof, woof, want to play? You know, it's dangerous in a good way and spicy. So we go, well, I'm willing to be dangerous to opinions. And I love my friend's phrase, you know, dangerous in a good way. What does that mean? Like positive intrigue. And yes, we do want to play. And I love, you know, deriving, you know, from, yes, mythic characters and wonderful writer Terry Pratchett's work and his character Granny Weatherwax, who, um, when she's told, you can't do that impossible thing to save the world, you know, there's a million to one chances against you. And it's said that Granny Weatherwax smiles in a way that would have frightened wolves and says, you know, million to one chances crop up nine times out of ten. When your heart is dedicated, so so what what should we do, team? Um, expectation is the partner of disappointment. Oh, I knew the political system would let me down, but willingness is the dance partner of life. So, as a democratic kind of quality, it's a small verbal distinction, but a huge energy difference. So. I'm just inviting us all, like, you know, what if we were to throw into the cauldron, the deep winter cauldron of now, all past, present, and future expectation and its consequent disappointment and ladle out willingness to play? You know, and we go, oh, man, we could, like, run the world if we were disappointment-proof. I mean... Think of the energy we wouldn't be leaking and You just indulging. answered all my questions. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's good. So, yeah. So, woof, woof, want to play, team? We, we can do this if we cahoot with, you know, nature's ingenuity and the wolves and the trees and the whatever and what wants to happen here and, you know, openness and live as though the story were true that one wants to be true and see what happens. I also want to throw the use of the word wound as a metaphor into the cauldron. It's like, God, the poor word has been serving as a metaphor for 50 years. It's tired. It's a dead it's tired. horse. No, 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 dead horse. I want to throw that into the cauldron too. Like beating a dead horse. Who's beating a dead horse? No. These are the metaphors of our time. Though. Well, they're, they're tired. And we have so much, you know, rich language and metaphor that liberates the thing. Mm. Because when we hear the expected, it's a prison. Like, oh, my wound is terrible. My, uh, but the fresh language, again, is liberating, which is why even the word liberating is pretty liberating. Like a friend of mine really likes early Christianity, which was liberating. So she was going to call her website Liberating Christianity. But I love putting liberating in front of everything because it means a quality of the thing and a service to be performed for the thing. So the liberating aspects of Christianity and then also liberating Christianity from its ding battery. And, you know, liberating Goddard, liberating KPFA. See, I think satire is also important. Everything worthy should have a South Park episode, you know, just to keep it honest and liberated and, and clean. Nothing so reverent that it shouldn't be mocked. Not sarcasm, which is mean, but pointing out contrast. The tradition of the woman trickster was that she mocked the community because she loved it. Because she wanted to hold it to its standards, right? And where did that come from? I, well, I'm not aware of that. I know. That's the first I've heard of I know. It's the return of what's been sneakily repressed. So somebody handed me you know, a monograph on the tradition of the woman trickster in throughout many, many, many traditional cultures. And you can find it, but it hasn't been well known. And it said that the woman trickster, she mocks the community because she loves it and wants to hold it to its standards. And defies the authorities with wit and elan to demonstrate to others she's done it and survived. To inspire. <laughs> yeah. Caroline Casey. Right, and, and let me just put up my website, because there's many, many ways to play. Coyote Network News dot com. 
Lots of radio shows, lots of trickster linguistic training. I mean, all kinds of fun. And you do a radio show out of Washington, D.C. I do. That okay. is probably more well-known at KPFA in Bay Berkeley. Area. Yeah, so the, the main audience is, is Berkeley, kind of the usual suspects in a way. And then people who are up very, very late or very early in Los Angeles, which is quite a lot of Los Angeles. And then by podcast all over the place, but yeah. So do you do your show at home? Do you pre-produce it or do you go into the studio and do it live? No, I don't know your board-up skills. I go into a grown-up studio, public radio studio, because the Pacifica station is challenged and then we connect to kpfa live and i love rushing in because i can sometimes be late and handing to board up you know i go we have five minutes can you edit this thing and you know and he goes relax we have five minutes and he said think of how long five minutes of dead air would be on the radio and you go oh it's forever it's wonderful i mean i keep that with me everywhere going oh my god i've only got three minutes Think of how long three minutes of dead air would be on the radio. And there's so, that other window of possibility yeah. that we can look out. Right. When the other window looks so dark. Right. Yeah, well, choosing, you know, why would we vote for that? Um, why would we go to a buffet and eat the worst tasting food? And a lot of people, mm. they actually do that. They go into the political arena and they focus all their attention on what they hate. What exactly. they hate. Yeah. And all the other choices fade completely out of range. It's like I also like to say, let's let's go playful and big, team. What if we were willing to throw into the cauldron our addiction to having an enemy? Mm. Then when somebody says, well, let's do this beautiful thing. So, well, no, we can't do that. That'll never work. Or if you knew as much as I did, you'd know that that was silly. And it's like, colonialism, flag right. on that play. You know, but I also want to do the magic now, which is, you know, to not constrain people. The great value of small things and small words. So, you know, when any of us to ourselves or any you know, buddy goes complaining difficult narrative, you know, I haven't done this or that or this or that. And I just go, yet, yet, mm -hmm. you know. And then the even more powerful for the next stage is until now. Mm -hmm. Until now. So it has been that people have been, you know, imprisoned by their own false sense of realism into detachment and being snookered at whatever the, the thing is. Until now. Mm -hmm. Woof, woof. You know, and, because until now, I think it's really like a key that opens the story habit circle into a spiral. Going, there we go, there we go. Come on out, everybody. So I don't want our team, you can see the reactive team going, if Bernie doesn't win, I'm not voting. It's like, now, flag on that play, you know, first it's preemptive disappointment, a five-year fear planner already, you know, let's throw that into the thing. And also, you know, another f political friend of mine says, leaders are designed to be disappointing so that we don't give away our authority completely, you know, in the mystery play. It, there's a larger dynamic of local democracy and school boards, really important. And then people go, oh, I don't want to poison myself with that news or reality. And I go, I'll drink the poison for you. It's part of my assignment. But remember... In 1930s Germany, there was a whole lot of angel talk. Angels, a lot of divine feminine hoo-ha, a lot of yoga, a lot of astrology. It was great, but completely divorced from political reality. They didn't see what was happening. And so that's why I go pragmatic mysticism. It's the wedding. We want to tease whatever we think of a spiritual practice into does it make the world tangibly better for the squirrel in the tree, the person in the whatever, does it improve things that now is really the time of taking everything we've ever loved or studied and going, how would we apply this into molecular reality? So it sounds like we can't allow ourselves to fall into the trap of just playing and singing in our choirs, that we have to go out and play with 
the proverbial dark side or the things that tend to repel us unless we're paying more close attention to our responsive reactiveness. Right. Well, I don't know. And again, you know, we would say no, no rules but guidelines. So everybody's got a different assignment. But I would say, you know, the inner dedication magnetizes the opportunity. And to take everything that happens as an opportunity... You know, again, I, I love this educated druid, John Michael Greer. He's got a great blog out there. You can Google that, John Michael Greer. Really smart, educated person. But he says, you know, if you want people to get nothing done but conflict, you know, convince them they're on one side of something. You only get heat. Mm-hmm. What two needs is three, unifying story. Here we all are. So to compost our harumphitude enough to be able to speak to whomever arrives in front of us and going, and go invite in the unifying story. You know, we're all in this thing here. See, I think even repetitive use of words like racism and sexism is, in fact, the problem. Because there's a prison already for it. But it's, like, more better to take the time for a story. You know, after 9-11, we had the biographies of all the Americans killed in the towers, but we didn't have the biographies of the Iraqis. Hmm. Well, that's racism. It's a story going, oh, yeah, why'd we do that? Rather than just a word. I think a lot of repetitive language becomes tyrannical through repetition and prevents curiosity and actually shuts down the conversation rather than enlivens it. So whatever's before us, it does seem to be a time now to invoke the unifying story. And when we have a kerfuffle with somebody, to ask people to define things going, well, what would you like the school to look like? What would you like? Because when people define things, like what's your definition of a civil society or a school or whatever, it starts to open things up going, oh. Because, I mean, I do hang out with contrarians a lot. And they go, oh, liberals is, you know, narrow, I've got mine kind of thing. And I go, really? That's your definition of liberals? Well, if that's your definition, yeah, to hell with them, right? What's your definition of Republican? They go, well, in the age of Lincoln and the thing. And I go, all right, I can go for that. You know, it's it's like when people love a movie that I really couldn't stand, I go, I love the movie you saw. Or Hillary Clinton challenging, I mean, she does give me conniption fits. I, that's why I like her being appointed to the Supreme Court. I just, what would draw out the good part of her? She certainly is a complex experiment. But when people go, you know, I love Hillary, and I go, I love your Hillary. I mean, we still want compassion with sizzle and wicked fun and satire as liberating, sarcasm, imprisoning means to bite and chew and harm satire liberating the con man and the trickster the former imprisons the latter liberates but that means for all of us to tease democracy into every fiber of our being is our manner of relating offering serves democracy and liberation or imposition let me tell you how it is serves empire and colonialism no matter what one says one's doing so what's the con and what's the trick and i think useful for all of us and again you know just we're allowed to experiment with setting in motion anything of which we would be the happy recipient so i think it's important certainly in this election and everything you know To do common sense things, but also, you know, may anything up to no good be revealed, rendered harmless, and an occasion for liberating mirth. You know, any vote fixing, any sneaky shenanigans, may they be revealed. I think that's a good thing to do. And I love your harumph composter. Yeah, harumphitude composter is really important. It's that essential tantric alchemical dance with these elements, because otherwise we're stuck in a world where everyone's harumphing. 
right. about it. And even competing about her, who's got the bigger harumph. Exactly. And it is tyrannical. It is. And it's most tyrannical to ourselves. Yeah. Well, it's a poison. So <laughs> everyone's trying to save the world, but it seems like they're voting for the practical choices. Oh, yeah. The situation's so dire, we can't afford the luxury of realism. Anyway, never mind that. Harumphitude. But it's like, <laughs> may, may we all be growing the forms for our skookum. I love the word skookum, right? Skookum. Skookum. It's a Pacific Northwest word. In vernacular, people think it means pretty good. But it comes from a syncretizing creativity from the mixing of cultures of white explorers and native people. And so skookum means connected to the spirits and completely competent for the work at hand. Mm. It's a great word. Mm, it's a beautiful word. It's a great word. So may we be skookum. They need to teach some courses in that, yes. starting in elementary school. Skookum. Right. I'm not sure that schools can do that. Oh, maybe only okay. nature can teach skookum, but there's a great ally, Michael Schneider, who's, a, I call him a mathematician. He's a mathematician, deeply learned person. But he says one of the greatest losses of intimacy in the modern world was when the teaching of math was divorced from the teaching of nature. I'm like, oh, I could have loved math. Which feeds wonder, which feeds curiosity, which feeds freedom, which feeds respect and participation. And we're for the skookum rewedding of all that's been falsely estranged. And that's also part of the track, like for everybody, all of us, to think of, well, what are we dedicated to? You know, what's our manifesto of dedicated devotion? Who's been dedicated to that in history? Like, when did that start, going all the way back? You know, what's behind radio, or what's behind writing, or what's behind theater? Or when did that start? Religion, all religious impulses. You know, where's the originating impulse for that before it got hoodwinked into servitude, right? So, I like to say with the beautiful astrological language... Some things are always true, but there are times when they're truer. They kind of come around. So right now is part of, um, you know, and it's only valid to the extent that everybody feels it as a resonance. But it says, you know, remember, retrieve the stories, the wisdoms that we have loved and offer ourselves as expressions in a liberating, modern, experimental vernacular for that. So, you know, remember in, in early religion, in early Christianity, heretic was a term of praise. Mm, I love it, that. Because it means free thinker. They yeah. go, boy, that Tonio sure is a heretic. It would mean a good thing. Oh, I love the word heretic. Yeah. I mean, th right. that's, that's the ultimate honor. Yeah, we heart heresy. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. right, good bumper stickers. So free thinking, and then a friend of mine calls St. Paul the early Karl Rove, meaning kidnapping the liberating teachings, which was about independence and quite a lot of tolerance and radical impulse and good stuff, kidnapping those teachings into servitude to the state. And where a playful heart can elicit, sometimes you got to cross the line to know where it is, but sometimes it's more delightfully open than one had thought. So... There was a very important rabbi somebody brought to my house. They wanted us to meet, you know, and he seemed playful enough. So I said, here's my metaphor for the Abrahamic religions, that they're like shipwrecks on which barnacles and occasionally beautiful coral grow. And he's like, that's great. He said, I love that image. So it's part of our expanded tolerance. All of our societies and institutions are, are the same thing. Yes. You know, I think there's more beauty around religion than, well, who knows? But again, excavate, 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 mm -hmm. you know, and find the common story. So when mm -hmm. I hang out with, you know, kind of right-wing conservatives or Bruce Fine, right-wing constitutional lawyer, but a very educated person, everybody's got a role in the mystery play somewhere. So the, the panel guys are up there and a woman self-identified as a crazy right-wing Tea Party person says, we should really be bombing everybody in the Middle East and, and what about they're getting ready to bomb us and, you know, Iraq and blah, blah, blah. And so Bruce Fine, right-wing constitutional lawyer, says calmly, even if that were true, which it's not, 
the founding fathers were very clear that the greatest threat to democracy is fear-mongering at home. And it calmed her down. She needed that from him. I couldn't have done that. That was his role, mm -hmm. to give her educated, calm truth from a right-wing, sane perspective. From her own choir. From her own choir. And she was calm and even said so, like, for the first time in, like, a couple years. It was like, ah, oh, he just talked her down. Mm -hmm. So we go, we needed that medicine then. We weren't deeply educated. Another friend of mine said, you know, because I hang out with this, it's my social life. I, you know, I live with a coyote and then I hang out with right wingers. It's not fun dating in Washington, but it is a curious assignment. And also, I'm sort of the secret waif. Like, I mean, these people are often very wealthy and I, I'm a self employed astrologer. But we're all equal on some level. So a friend said, you know, that guy over there is the most conservative person in the, at this party. Go talk to him. So I go, Hello. And my friend Joe, who got given a Reagan Award, you know, he's, he's become my great friend. Really interesting iconoclast, Jolly. Runs a right-wing think tank, but it's kind of libertarian. But he said the conversation about small government and big government is irrelevant. And he said, what do you know about Edmund Burke? And I go, not that much, you know. And he said, well, Edmund Burke, you know, was saying the more we cultivate inward restraint, or I would say Saturn, the fewer outer regulations we need. And I go... Well, this is a worthy conversation. This is astrology or metaphysics 101. We want a simultaneous education of citizenship and cultivation of responsibility and to be a cool guy or, or guy in the neighborhood to take care of what needs to be taken care of and to be dedicated to collective well-being. And so this concern, we were all agreeing about that. And I go, this is a great conversation to have, you know, about inward and outward. And I said, it's like Taoism. And once again, like the right-wing guy at the thing, he goes, he goes, Taoism, I love Taoism. I haven't been able to have a conversation about Taoism with my conservative friends, you know, in years, here, let us go talk about it. You know, and I like him. And I do want to have him on the radio, Pacifica used to host people with great country. But I need to be more educated before I can talk to the educated conservatives. They know every bit of American history. I wouldn't agree with them, but I got to know it to disagree. And it's like, mm. they're much more educated than I am. You know, I grew up in a political, intellectual, uh, youngest of five, you know, fast-talking, much older, hipper siblings. So, grew up with them playing Lenny Bruce and taking me to sophisticated movies like Black Orpheus when I'm six or five or, you know, to whatever. So, huge leg up. I see early with my smart siblings, you know, that there are political people of power coming through my parents' house who are dingbats going, these people are in power? Oh, my God. So, I'm disabused of the glamour of power early, we should all be disabused of the glamour of power. And so I was a um, precocious, grumpy, lefty, secular teenage person going, it's all religion's a crutch and it's all false and this is privilege and this is nonsense and this is not education and what, until marijuana and psychoactive plants. And I was like, <laughs> oh, wait a minute. This is fabulous. Wait, there's so much more beauty here. You know, beauty within, beauty without, you know, beautiful patterns in Middle Eastern art. That's what. And I had the great good fortune to be the kid who hung out at this very temporary salon where a person of some fame now had a legal importer's license from the government for, you know, exotic drugs. So I had a lot of friends. So I'm the kid, and there's people clerking from the Supreme Court and left wing writers coming through. And we're all doing responsible drug use and reading the Holler's catalog and reading Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung and everything and studying the Kabbalah and left wing politics. And in that context, I go, right, okay. 
I never want a straight job. And so here's this beautiful language of astrology, the oldest language in antiquity, where they stashed every piece of guiding wisdom and the sky-earth story and as above, so below, and I'll become an astrologer. So then I wander around, I go to an experimental college, I drop out of that, I go to London, I go to India, I go to... And then at that point, wandering around, going... Wow, university would be a great luxury. I've, I've been around and I'm only 20. I have so many stories to tell. So I finessed my way into Brown and studied everything that would be useful to astrology. Grail legend, Buddhism, causing parents great confusion, you know. <laughs> Japanese no theater and the Grail legend. And a black sheep in a family a, of black sheep? Psychedelic <laughs> sheep. Psychedelic sheep in a family of... Well, yeah, I mean, my parents were confounded... My brother's a writer. As a writer, you know, you went to law school. Anyway, I do understand their confusion and concern. So I am an always learning person. It took me forever to get my BA just because I'm a also procrastinating person. And you know, I left Brown owing one paper for my degree going, I don't need your degree. But then I noticed there were other things I wasn't finishing. That was my employing principle to justify procrastination, you know, dilly-dallying. But all of us, may we always be always learning people. May it be part of our default setting that, you know, there's a part of us, known as Jupiter, that no matter what does approach everything with curiosity. You know, even difficult, horrible things like, oh, God, I feel like hell. How but interesting. But I think that's part of everybody now, which is who brought what to this party. Those who survive the journey to the underworld and make it back. Mm -hmm. And if we're all listening, mm -hmm. aside from spooks and aliens, we welcome them too. But, if, but anybody listening, we're breathing, so we made it. Mm. So what got us through? What was useful in a time of extremity or sorrow or grief or loneliness or what? What was useful? Who brought what to this party? Because it is panic early to avoid the rush, although almost too late for that. But what gets us through? And that's where the myths are really important guidelines because there are ancestral wisdoms, you know, into our mythological DNA that do guide us about how do you survive the underworld and what happens to those who come back. You know, the myths are woofing to us. The anonymous, which is the Venus orbital cycle, myths are how cultures passed on their science embedded in it. Science and myths were happy partners. But um, the myth of Inanna is the Venus orbital cycle. And after she goes to the underworld, it's really intense. And, you know, she's going to a funeral and she almost dies, but she gets out. But then... To put it... Very briefly. <laughs> Very briefly, that's right, exactly. Because where we are in the narrative, let's say we've done that. As lyrics to a song say, we have all been close to death. We had little, then we found rhythm, and now we have much. I like that one. So when Anana gets back, but then she becomes an overworld cultural trickster redeemer, a Venusian trickster redeemer. She rescues human culture, right? She gets back from the underworld... The Sumerian poetry is very trippy, so she's recovering, going, wow, that was really intense. And it says one day she's contemplating the wonders of her own vulva and going, oh, it is so great to be a woman. And the idea occurs to her that she's going to rescue human culture that's been stolen by Enki, the god of wisdom. So again, very sophisticated of the Sumerians to say anybody unchallenged, even the god of wisdom, will become tyrannical. It's not cha challenge is good for people. Keeps them honest. Every myth tells us that the Quetzalcoatl, Mesoamerica, unchallenged, he drinks the balche, the ring of power drink. You know, anybody. You know, all so, of us. All of us. It's interesting. It came up a little bit at Goddard, where it's a little bit tiptoey about what you can or can't talk about. I was surprised. Going really, there's conversations you can't have. Mm. 
hmm, wonder what Trickster will do with that. Because there's kind of criticism of Earth, like, how dare you criticize something? And it's like, well, criticism is healing. It's meant to be discernment, diahyphenosis, you know, to bring in the, the wisdom, oh, you can't criticize that, you know. And it's like, huh, well, hmm, we'll see. Hmm. Um, because whatever we don't address does come up as shadow, right? As, Absolutely. Oh, Inanna, wait, wait. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, Inanna. So... Very briefly, because people devote their whole lives to this myth, you know. So, Inanna Venus, part of all of us, regardless of temporary age, race, and gender assignment, sets forth with her good friend, because, like in detective novels, it's good to have a buddy. And she arrives on Enki's Island, and she doesn't go grr. She's a Venus hero within us all. She gets him drunk on beauty and poetry. And as he gets drunk on beauty and poetry, he gives back to her qualities of human culture that he's stolen and you know he leads with the erotic arts which is witty and then comes you know science and writing and real estate and everything and she puts it all on her boat and he does send demons that's important you know but she's so pumped up as a kind of trickster with her friend that she fends them off with alacrity and that's how venus inanna brings culture back to human society but had had culture stolen and replaced with empty celebrity baubles of superficiality and she brings real culture back and then humans can have a renaissance, and collaborate with nature again. Yay! Okay, and that's where we are now. Those who survived the journey of the underworld earn the right to be trickster redeemers. And where is Inanna now? Hopefully she's arising within all of us. She is, and she's rising, you know, every morning higher in the sky. Mm. She is in us, too. Amen. Amen. A woman. Woof, woof. Woof, woof. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Caroline Casey. This has been a delicious, wonderful... Can I say the website? Little just playful the, conversation. You can be at coyotenetworknews.com. Yes. Woof, woof. Yes. There you go. On the Magical Mystery Tour. Yay. The Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Stay with us for more of Caroline Casey coming up in about a minute.
reading your website, and it starts like this. Welcome allies to the realm of trickster medicine. Pragmatic mysticism, democratic animism, applied divination, and a willingness to cooperate with everything. Nature reminds us that some seeds only sprout after cataclysm, flood, fire, or ordeal. By analogy, some parts of us only come alive at a time of dire beauty. This trickster within loves against all odds, so now is perfect. Caroline is not only a force of nature, but a force of culture. And some of her trademarks are the willingness to look at so-called opponents, not in a clash way, but with her woof woof wanna play approach. Another quote that she has from Brewer Rabbit that says, if we're not having a good time, we're not serious enough. And I just love the way her uncanny capacity to use astrology, mythology, culture, politics in a weave that just ignites us. These are hard times. These are serious times. And if we're not having a good time, we're not serious enough. So with joy in my heart, it's a pleasure to introduce Caroline Casey. Wow, I just live alone really in the semi-woods with a coyote. It's very surprising to see all you humans or all you animals disguised as humans going, oh, because I do often say to the coyote, you know, we live, you know, in humble obscurity outside Washington, D.C. on behalf of the team. But, you know, in California, I'm kind of a small big deal. And they're like, oh, whatever, okay. But, but, it, but so we, we, are all, we are all here in a, in, a, in a lucky coinciding at this auspicious moment. So those of you who have hung with me for a little bit, you know, know Muti. Muti means power and medicine. It comes from the Sangomas of South Africa. It reminds us that all power is healing intrinsically. And so the Muti, you know, we say, oh, spirit of the compassionate trickster redeemer residing within each one of us, you know, willing to bound onto the world stage, you know, open the path before us that we may cultivate, magnetize, animate our gifts and spiral them forth into the world at this time of dire beauty. Maybe so. So, I'm big on attribution. I, I, I have to say that it is my wonderful friend David Lynn Grimes who coined the phrase, you know, if we're not having fun, we're just not serious enough, and had guided me to Br'er Rabbit. Bless you forever, uh, spirit trickster brother. And the Br'er Rabbit opening lines are, there was times when all the creatures used to gather to sagatuate, just like there ain't been no hard times, just like there had been no falling out, just like they remembered they were all kin. We go, ah, all the trickster tales. So how lucky to be incarnationally coinciding, oh, audience of the age, wizards and, you know, dervishes and uh, everybody here disguised as whatever you are. It's time to come out of our witness relocation program. Um, no matter no matter how hip our cover, you know, we're still even more frisky than that. So we go, ah. So cooperators are standing by. I want to <laughs> let me introduce them because this call and response, it is such a powerful time right now to gather. The gods, the backstage metaphors, you know, the, the invisible are always proffering to us humans going, God, we wish the humans would ask for help because spiritual etiquette requires that they ask so that we can enter from backstage to onstage. And we go, oh, now would be really good. So we can feel, you know, our ancestors for 25,000 years behind us would have gathered now at Equinox. 
but also for bonus points, uh, I, a precise new moon yesterday, a solar eclipse visible in Norway and the Arctic encircling some of the most endangered parts of the planet. Greenland's ice is melting at 60 times the worst scenario, whatever, and the eclipse is right there, okay. But an eclipse, you know, uh, at the very last degree of the zodiac, right before the sun enters the first degree of the zodiac, is full of beguiling opportunity for us. The realm of Pisces, the last realm of the, the, the last sign of the zodiac, it's the realm of all of us. Let us all be culture doctors, in a sense. Pisces is the realm of dreams, vision, imagination, fairy tales, all that has ever had the capacity to elicit a kind of majnun, a kind of yearning madness for the divine. Um, and that eclipse at the very last degree of the zodiac says, for everybody, you know, to, to, to uh, refresh, to magnetize, invite in and animate, you know, all that you've ever loved in stories, in films, in poetry, in music that is dear to you, that we now have the opportunity to bring it alive again in fresh new telling, may it be, may it be so. So we I go, oh, audience of the age, because that is part of the frame story of the Arabian Nights that I want to guide us into in a brief fashion. So to introduce the, the, the players, the cooperators who are standing by, we have an eclipse, which provides us a metaphor. What would we like eclipsed by what? You know, may hyper yang death frenzy, uninitiated Mars, be eclipsed by beauty leading the world back to sanity, for instance. So we want to start priming the pump of our imaginative, metaphoric, extended linguistic capacity because language grants us access to the realm it describes. If we have a language, we can go there. And one of the beautiful things about the exquisite, much dissed, language of astrology. It is the exquisite language of interrelatedness. Everything. People to land to coyotes and cabbages and all in one dream together. And it is the exquisite language of our individual psyches and its specific connection to the larger world. So the planets represent living qualities of intelligence that reside within us and connect us to the world. So as I kind of introduce them, they're, they're woofing, they have things to say to us to help us out. You know, feel the resonance, the corresponding resonance, you know, within each one of us too, going, oh, that is being fed. And it's part of our strategy as cultural healers, as cultural storytellers, to assume cultural narrative lead at this time of dire beauty. So we're not just reacting like, we're going, we're going this way. And to be storytellers, again, willing to cross borders. The word metaphor means to carry a cross. You know? Again, language is so fabulous when we look it up in an etymological dictionary. We're going back into the spiritual archaeology of language where it takes us to a living realm of animism you know, and makes it all much more clear. We are surrounded by these fabulous bird drawings on the Darth hummingbird behind me is fantastic. But it reminds us of the word inaugurate comes from the augur the diviner within each one of us who would observe the patterns of birds whereby nature would speak to us because we live in a storytelling creation and guide us to the most responsible human and then they would be inaugurated. That's what it means. So let's bring it back. You know, simple things also, the word respect, re is again, spect is look. Respect means to look again. Or re, 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 respect until you find something. Because whatever we speak to in another is the corresponding part of themselves 
we're inviting to dance with the corresponding part of ourselves. So the reason we want to compost into the eclipse cauldron and the Pluto bubbling cauldron judgment, we want to keep discernment, ladle out discernment. But when we're judging, we're really inviting the worst part of another to dance with the least evolved part of us, and it's just never pretty. So this idea of transcending polarity, you know, to be snookered into polarity is to be hoodwinked into serving the overlords and the mentors of doom, bless their hearts, may they have one again, um, you know, no matter what label we put on our butts. So I love that neuroscience, I think it was two years ago, neuroscience came out and said, we've discovered that people remember things better when they're in stories. We go, you cute little neuroscience, you little, you little whippersnapper, you, that's so cute. Um, no, we, I mean, we're grateful, we're grateful, but lineages do. So right now, we are here to, again, restore intimacy to the world, you know. So just to, to feel right now, just for the fun of it, straight up overhead is Uranus that represents, oh, there we go, people, oh, people are liking that, that's good, yes. Feel Uranus straight up overhead, why not? Uranus goes, thank you, they're hoisting their sails of willingness, the humans are willing, let's send the wind, you know, for windfalls of wherewithal and an increased field of serendipitous synchronicity because the, the backstage divine is really wanting to help the humans out. We've got to either kill them or heal them. We'll try healing them first, okay? So, so part of the field of now is let's play to their strong suit. Some things are always true, but there are times when they're truer. So right now the pattern says, you know, again the backstage says, let's make the power of story and games and blessing even more potent. You know, even more magnetizing the molecules. So we live the story. We, 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 we understand the horror, important to be informed. You know, again, many who have been hanging with me, we, we all have these metaphoric great skills that we've always had like Dorothy slippers. We have a magic mirror. It's invisible under your chair. Um, uh, but you can take it home with you. And the magic mirror means the secular critic holds up a mirror to society and goes, look, it sucks in detail. And, and that's important. And then the trickster part of all of us with a wave of the hand turns the mirror into a window, but look how beautiful it could be. And then with another wave of the hand, the trickster within us all turns it into a door, let's go. <sighs> so for all of us to be irresistible, to invite in genius, again, all of it's a partner, we source nothing, and that's where fairy tales provide us with such important etiquette. So, yeah, I like to say, if we expect from humans what can only be provided by gods, we have guaranteed our disappointment, which only leads to tantrum yoga. <laughs> so, you know, as, as, we, as we journey along, you know, think of personally and collectively what one would like to throw into the bubbling alchemical cauldron and ladle out. And what does something want to be transformed into? You know, um, things I carry with me, uh, ancestor, allies, wonderful Nalita Anderson, who was a client and friend raised from birth as a kahuna in Hawaii. And one of the crucial things that I keep in my magic backpack that she told me, she said, we had to learn about poison and harm in our training, not to cause harm, but because in the body of a person and the body of a culture, the killing points are the same as the healing points. The difference is intention. 
Oh, that's a good one. So we're here to go, no, no, we might have abused power in the past, but really we do want to heal. We really, we really do. Holding to our dedication, the power of dedication is a humble acknowledgement that we can't even be who we want to be by ourselves. It's by ourselves that got us into this pickle. Only by a humble willingness to cooperate with nature's guiding, evolutionary, resilient, against all odds, loving, genius known as trickster you know are we going to wend our way out of this you know it's a huge evolutionary opportunity that's a kind of easy thing to say but let's animate it more so if we're taking all past myths and bringing them alive again so yeah so so i did want everybody to see this incredible coat it's alive it's taking me on this equinoctial tour it's from afghanistan it has not been worn in 80 years and the zamani afghani family they're like you will pay for it somehow it wants to go with you go and i go all right so, because <laughs> I'm a Libra, you bet, you know, yes, I sell the cow for magic beans, you know, absolutely, to dree our weird. Um, so this is an extraordinary coat that was embroidered by a family that is still making handmade beauty in Afghanistan. And my conversation with Afghani friends that I'm being led to, we're all on a scavenger hunt and we pursue where the path opens. And we've had great conversations about the importance of Venus, handmade. You know, Martine Prechtel says, to feed the indigenous soul, have around you things that you know who made them. They have a story, and the story embraces and protects and guides us. You know, that we live in a storytelling creation, that everything's speaking to us all the time by its shape, its song, its rhythm. And if we just approach the world with informed, reverent curiosity, we humans would be back, you know, in the embrace of the choreography of creation and uh, so we've come to offer ourselves to that so it is handmade and the Zamani family wants people to know about the Venusian beauty of Afghanistan this rich culture of handmade extraordinary beauty uh, wherever there's Mars hyper yang Mars death frenzy in the world let us go for the Venus we might say the world is being destroyed by uninitiated Mars in myriad forms and throughout mythology and life and nature it is Venus that initiates Mars Venus's kinship and at this time right now, for 25,000 years, you know, people would gather to invite the literal and symbolic light of the sun to illumine the painting or the poem at the back of the cave. Come on in, power, and animate this poem, this story. We invite power in and we offer it a template in our own personal lives and collective lives. So, since we're in an Arabian night story and the coat wanted to come because it is Scheherazade's wedding coat for reasons I hope to remember to tell you. <laughs> so a great Turkish author, Guneli Gun, who wrote a wonderful book called On the Road to Baghdad in which Scheherazade is a character. At the end of the radio interview, she goes, you know, in pre-Islamic Ottoman Empire, you know, in the Middle East, the predominant deity was she-wolf. And throughout the Middle East was this azure blue flag emblazoned with an alpha female wolf's head on it. I'm like, whoa, let's bring her back. You know, what's that? Underneath, underneath, again, the animal kinship originating collaboration with nature's desire realm. And we go, ooh. And so she-wolf, in a sense, becomes Scheherazade. Now, do most people know the Scheherazade frame story? Just, uh, a little, a little mini. Okay, uh, short version. So... Frame stories throughout human history, stories within stories within stories. So the Shahrazad frame story is King Shariar has been bitterly betrayed by his wife and will trust no women at all. And so he determines out of 
vanity and affront and general sociopathic moodiness, that he will, he will bed a virgin each night, and at dawn he will behead her. So the land is getting pretty thin of virgins. And Scheherazade, whose name means city redeemer, the Arabian Nights are full of women trickster redeemers, mostly. Again, some of them have been you know, edited out, but they're back now, because right now overhead, the moon and Aries kick butt right next to Trickster, right next to Mars, all being led by Venus. It is such a beautiful thing, and there are images for each degree of the zodiac. The moon's image right now, straight up overhead, is the gateway to the garden of all desired things. We go, ooh. It has never been so cool, so available, so welcomed to be a kind of kick butt, you know, Venus-Mars integrated trickster redeemer being. It's a very welcoming field. You know, Neptune would whisper in everybody's ears, imagine that the deepest, most exiled, most shamed, and most beautiful part of each one of us is about to be completely culturally welcome. <sighs> Exile over. Ali Ali income free. <laughs> King Arthur did not die. He went to Avalon to go take Pilates classes with the priestesses, you know, to await the, to await the world's call at a time of dire necessity to conjure, to invite back in positive Yang to dance with positive Venus. And so it is with many of the deities. The myths never end. They get put on pause and we want to hit play. So, it's, and as Michael alluded to, we all aspire together, we're all equally befoibled, but it's really good to dedicate, because when we dedicate, we're saying to the invisible, hold me to this. This is the art form of person I want to be, and it's a very powerful, good time to do that, for each one of us to write our manifesto of dedicated devotion, because it's like placing an order, and Jupiter and Uranus go, you write it, we'll fill the order. We go, okay. So Scheherazade, whose name means city redeemer, and her sister Dunyazad, whose name means world redeemer, Scheherazade says, I will marry the sociopathic king. And she is the daughter of the grand wazir and so protected by privilege. And her father is like, no, no, no. And she goes, no, watch this. And so each night she tells this beguiling story to the crazy king. And then Scheherazade perceives the dawn of day and ceases to say her permitted say in the middle of the story. And Shariar says, what's another day? Okay, what the hell? You know, and he goes on for a thousand and one nights, during which time they've had three children. And at the end of it, he goes, you know, you have healed me. You know, I am a, a sociopathic thing, that guy who had hardened my own heart, you know, and lost all Venus, but you have been my redeemer. And there's many ways that that beautiful story is told. But within that story, briefly, I just want to bring into play, as pertinent to us all, that hums in our bones, uh, is so pertinent now, the tale of the Princess Perizada. And just as a preliminary one, listening to a recording of myself on my way here, <coughs> going, that was great. <laughs> At a time of some difficult thing, I, I, I began by, somebody passed me a, a note before I stepped on stage saying, thank you for not giving up on beauty. And I was like, oh, it's so beautiful. So thank all of us for not giving up on beauty. Beauty is strong. We are here to restore intimacy to the world. So, yeah, the beautiful tale sort of begins also. Gunnelli Gunn says, her dervish character says, the world is run by those who don't know how to make love, and that's why the world is in terrible shape. Go. Right, the dance of Venus and Mars, which is important. When you join Al-Qaeda, or what's called in the West ISIS, but Daesh, you, you do a marriage ceremony. You know, it's a toxic mimic of a, of a real thing. So it behooves us to do the real thing. Remember that it was on this day, Persian New Year, vernal equinox, the sacred to all life that George W. Bush began bombing. So we are here to be the bomb, B-A-L-M, to all the bombs. So it happens. 
that Harun al-Rashid, a great king who would don peasant garb and walk through the streets with his grand wazir, and they happened upon three sisters talking. And the three sisters, the oldest one said, if I could have anything in the world, I would marry the sultan's pastry chef, and that way I would always have fantastic things to eat. And the second sister says, you know, I would marry the sultan's masseuse, and that way I'd never have a stiff neck. And the third and youngest sister says, I would marry the sultan himself, and I would give birth to three children, all of whom would be great heroes, but the greatest of whom would be a wise and beautiful daughter who would help lead the world back to sanity. So the king goes to court and goes, oh, interesting, and he summons the three sisters and says, I will grant all of your wishes. Now the younger sisters are like, bleep in hell. <laughs> so he marries, he marries the, the youngest daughter and in the fullness of time she is pregnant. The jealous sisters, as often happens in fairy tales, say we will be the midwives. And a beautiful baby boy is born and the jealous sisters take the baby and throw it into the river. And uh, they replace it with a hedgehog. And the sultan comes in and goes, a hedgehog? How odd. Well, we'll try again. So, in the fullness of time, the beautiful queen gives birth to another beautiful baby boy, and the evil sisters throw it in the river, and they replace it with a pig. And so, uh, and the sultan comes in and goes, a pig? How odd. You know, okay. And they do it again, and she gives birth to a beautiful baby daughter, oh, and the sisters throw it in the river and replace it with a cow. And the sultan comes in and goes, that does it, that does it, you're a witch, you're a witch, I'm going to have you publicly chastised, and everybody spit on you, and, and if you don't spit on her, I'll put you to death because we're in that kind of mean story. So she's imprisoned and dragged off. Meanwhile, downriver, a humble gardener and his wife are like, a baby! Another baby! Another baby! Ooh. And they are raised and loved. And it happens that, you know, the gardener and his wife die, but the princess Perizada, the youngest daughter, whose name means fairy born, you know, they live very beautifully until one day a dervish comes to their house and says, you really have a gorgeous, off-the-grid, really groovy house here, I can see, you know. But, you know, you could really use three things. You need to go to the magic mountain and you need to get the talking bird, the singing tree, and the golden waters of life. So it is the problem of having a feng shui consultant come to your house. You go, oh, there's never enough. My goodness. So the oldest son sets forth and says, I will go do these things. And he says, here's a dagger. Oh, sister, if it turns red, it means I'm dead. So he goes off. And, and the dagger turns red and the sister goes, oh no, you're dead. The next brother says, I will go forth and, and do this heroic thing. And here's a string of pearls. And if they break, it means I'm dead. The pearls break. Perizana says, oh no, my brothers are dead. I must set forth. At the foot of the mountain, there's a dervish, disguised as a beggar. And she says, oh, grandfather, do you have any advice for me in climbing this mountain and doing this heroic task that has already claimed the life of my brothers? And he says, well, you know, you're the first person who asked advice. This is going surprisingly well. Everybody else, and I remember your brothers, they were like, out of the way, old man, you know. But here's the advice. As you go up the mountain, there will be voices that hurl customized insults at you, and you must not, under any circumstances, look back. Very important fairy tale underworld. Because then you will be turned to your heart, and then your body will be turned to stone. So she goes, well, what if I stuff my ears with chamomile and beeswax? And he goes, oh, you're a clever person. This is going well. So she does that. And as she goes up the hill, she can hear customized, you know, insults being hurled at her. You know, in fact, you're not smart. You know, you're the same person. You're an astrologer. But, but she keeps going. You know, again, very important just to, to mark this because we right now, to react to anything is not free.
It's a hot thing in an already too hot world. You know, and it's to carry around a portable prison for ourselves and for others. To cultivate an ever larger repertoire of responses, you know, is to ally ourselves with nature's bountiful ingenuity and mythic availability. So she gets to the top of a hill, and even the talking bird is hurling insults all the way at her, going, fat thighs, you know, you'll never, you'll never have sex again, whatever, you know, going straight. And so she gets to the top, and the talking bird goes, well done, well done done. You did it. You know, and here you don't need to cut down the whole tree. Here's a little cutting of the singing tree. And I'm the talking bird and I will hop on your shoulder. And here's a little vessel for the waters of life that you can restore. And she says, oh, but my brothers are dead. And the bird says, oh, don't worry about that. She goes, he says, as you come down the mountain, simply sprinkle the waters of life. You know, on all who could not resist reacting and whose heart and then bodies had turned to stone, just sprinkle the water on them. So she comes down the mountain, sprinkling the waters of life on all those who'd hardened their hearts, brought back to life this great celebration, this fantastic celebration, you know, and with her brothers. And her brothers go out into the woods and the world begins to come back to life and the birds are singing and the waters of life are, are restored again and the trees are repopulating. And it happens that the king is wandering through the forest, he's going, wow, what's, what's this? Wow. And he runs into the two young men, and he feels a curious, well, it's curious in the tale, it says a curious erotic attraction to them, which is kinky, but interesting. <laughs> and they go, come back to our house, O king. And the talking bird says to Perizada, serve to the king, serve to the sultan, a salad of cucumber and pearls. Okay. And the sultan says, cucumber and pearls, this is passing strange. And the talking bird says, cucumbers and pearls is talking strange, but a woman giving birth to a hedgehog, a pig, and a cow is not strange. And the sultan goes, oh my God, you are my children. I am an idiot. I am an idiot. Let me haul your mother out of prison. You know, whatever. And the, and the, world, <clears throat> and the world comes back to life. And may it be so for all of us, you know, that we are here to invite in all exiled beauty, that we are here to restore the waters of life and the singing bird and the talking tree and to have the story inform our, our bones and our blood. But um, the power of language, I like it when people say, you know, oh, whaley, whaley, are oh, this difficult, whatever. We are. The magic words, until now, until now. You know, it used to be, you know, until now, it's not just a Pollyanna thing, so we might just go, let this be the spring of until now, until now. And in a culture of reciprocal blessing, you know, Aizan is an Amharic word used to express support and encouragement to tackle challenges when one is embarking on a difficult journey. So we go, Aizan, Aizan, Aizan. And then Aliup from the French circus is, again, you know, a support, you know, a, a reciprocal blessing, an encouragement so that we can support each other as we leap up to invite beauty up into the world. And so we just go to each other. Aliyup. Thank you, team. Caroline Casey, Coyote Trickster, Redeemer, Mythological News and Visionary Activist, and host of the Visionary Activist radio show on Pacifica's flagship radio station, KPFA in Berkeley.
And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a great week. <laughs>